With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carasella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome back, everyone. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me for today's spirited conversation is Marguerite Rigoglioso. Marguerite is a Ph.D., the founding director of Seven Sisters Mystery School, offering in-person and online courses and events dedicated to restoring the ancient way of the priestess and the authentic priest in service to today's world. She's a scholar practitioner of the ancient Mediterranean mystery traditions, a university faculty member, a spiritual teacher, a channeler, and a mentor who helps women and men cultivate their spiritual knowledge and bring their sacred calling to fruition. Dr. Rigolioso is also the author of The Cult of Divine Birth in Ancient Greece and Virgin Mother Goddesses of Antiquity. These are pioneering volumes that explore women's shamanic abilities in an evolutionary new light. We'll be learning something about the mysteries that she writes about in these books in today's show. Welcome, Marguerite. Thank you, John. Great to be here. So uh, I first came across your work through a mutual friend of ours, uh, a friend of the show, Annette Wagner, and uh, I got to tell you, Cult of Divine Birth, that was such an amazing read. And I'm stunned that that I hadn't thought of it before, <laughs> you know, like like it's, you know, it's one of those things where it becomes obvious, like... <laughs> holy cow, we've been missing this whole storyline because it's been subverted and, and overwritten by something else. So, uh, in your words, tell, tell us what this, what is the cult of divine birth? What was the cult of divine birth? 
Yeah, I'm glad you saw that upon reading the book and hearing the concept, because not everyone does, but to me, it seems obvious. And so the idea here is that Mary was actually a priestess, a conscious priestess of divine birth, who was in a lineage. And the way I figured that out was that I started looking at the ancient priestesses of Greece. I didn't come with the idea that I was going to start looking for virgin birth. I came with the idea that I was going to start looking at what were the priestesses of ancient Greece and the ancient Mediterranean world more broadly, so including Egypt, uh, West Asia. But so, did, so did this start with Mary? Did your investigation start with Mary? No, no, it didn't. Okay. But because I was brought up Catholic, in a sense, it did, and mm. it would be the place where most people would start the question, right? Mm, right. But um, what I came to find out when I started looking at priestesses of ancient Greece was that there was this whole layer of their practice that had been overridden obscured under the guise of fiction and legend and mythology, quote unquote, but that was revealing that there was an ancient practice of women who were dedicated to doing non-ordinary conception as a spiritual practice whose aim was to bring high holy level beings, avatars, if you will, representations or kind of manifestations, human manifestations of the divine on earth. And Mary, therefore, was not the only one. There were many, many women prior to her doing it at the same time and after her who were part of this. And she herself was part of a lineage. And this was not a passive activity. This was not a form of almost like rape, you know, uh, by the women. But this was originally something that women cultivated in very, very deep ways that started when they were sometimes as young as two and three years old. So the whole purpose was to bring a high holy level being, what I call a holy one, to the planet, ideally to help humanity advance their consciousness. And these priestesshoods, though, were also co-opted. All right. So before we go, before we go there, because I want to come back to this uh, more, yeah. uh, the, the whole notion of the avatar the superior or enlightened being being born through a woman. I want to come back and talk about how that was viewed and how that was maybe uh, co-opted or corrupted. But how did I want to talk a little bit about the process first? Um, I, we're, we're diving right in here, which I really like. You said some of these women were in a lineage that began their preparation in early childhood. What what was the methodology? How did they do this? So these women were in families. So they were taught these secrets and methods from early on, and these were handed down. Essentially, the easiest way that I can understand and that I can convey it to other people is that it was an intense form of tantric practice. So what does that mean? It had to do with women getting uh, using their energy streams in their body using their sexual arousal energy, and also using altered states of consciousness all at the same time so that they could access other dimensional realms while they were doing this kind of work on their eggs, on their DNA. 
And they were also using the, the method of light. They, they were, uh, as Claire Hartsong, who's a channeler of this material, she was simultaneously channeling while I was doing this research. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that was a real synchronicity. Um, her books are, you know, the Magdalene's and then Anna, Grandmother of Jesus, and she channels this whole thing. She calls them light conceptions. Mm-hmm. So the women were using some sort of intense visualization of light, through these altered state journeys that they would go on um, to access intelligences and consciousnesses from other dimensions, what we might call star realms, if you will, um, in order to bring a an, a an actual conception into into their body. And I find that there were stages where the methods were different of how they did it. And I can go into that or we could pause. Oh, no, I want to hear more about it. <laughs> so... Um, what I find is that the first stage of this practice was what we call parthenogenesis. In other words, conception without male sperm or male presence of any kind. Right. It's a scientific term that means born of a virgin, essentially. Mm-hmm. Arthenos is a virgin. And um, then we have examples in, in biology in quote-unquote lower forms of life where parthenogenic behavior is natural. Like, for example, yeah. asexual reproduction in general is always parthenogenetic. It is. And uh, every once in a while I'll get an email, like just recently we had a snake, it happened with a snake, it's always happening with lizards and things like that, you know. Uh, So I'll get 70 emails, you know, hey, a snake just gave parthenogenetic birth. It's like, yeah. Um, Yes, it happens in the animal kingdom sometimes. It's happened experimentally in things like sea urchins. Um, It's happened partway in things like mice and rabbits. The human egg has been divided, but this is all scientific manipulation that shows that theoretically something like this is possible. But this is talking about a tantric inner spiritual practice that has religious dimensions and intentionality to it. Um, so the first stage would have been these women learning how to essentially become the parthenogenetic or virgin mother goddess themselves. Mm-hmm. So they would have this power. They would be able to do this. It was hard to do, though. And it had to be timed with their body, with the cycles of the sun and the moon and the stars and all this. I mean, it was a very esoteric practice. And then there was, though, a secondary phase after that. As the ages advanced, and in my research, what I find is that we advanced from a stage of mother-centered societies to a stage of father-ruled societies. Oh, wait, 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 before you go on. Okay, Mm -hmm. so so this first form of divine birth that you talked about, um, I, I imagine you're going to talk about, I think there are two others. Yeah. Right. Okay. So this first one, um, what, what was the nature of the beings that were incarnated through this practice in particular? Yes. Good question. I can tell you've done your reading, John. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so these beings, because these births were parthenogenetic, it meant that they, the women were only using X chromosomes. Their X chromosomes, which are their eggs. Right. And the, the female beings would be, the beings coming out would be female. Mm. And they would be high holy level female beings. So they would be female avatars or queens or priestesses. And they would be like the next generation of leader on the planet to help usher humanity uh, to its highest 
evolutionary capabilities or at least to maintain a high spiritual vibration. Okay, so in in a matriarchal culture, it would have been completely reasonable for the leadership to emerge consistently as female. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it passed from female to female. And that doesn't mean that men didn't have a role or that men weren't um, high-level leaders as well. But this is, in a sense, the essence of matriarchy is is virgin birth, parthenogenetic uh, birth. That so that's a that's a bold claim. Yeah, isn't it? That the <laughs> essence. The, colleagues <laughs> would agree with me, but <laughs> I'm. So so. By uh, the way, I need to tell you that while we're talking, information is coming through me that is new or wasn't even exactly in my books. So I'm kind of an open channel right now, so this will be an inspired conversation. Uh, that's why we call it Spirited Conversations. <laughs> yeah. You set the stage. Okay, so um, I, want, I, I want to come back to matriarchy as a uh, sociological structure a little later in the program if we can. Um, but you said something that's very provocative, and I'm gonna, I want to note it again. The, the divine birth, you say, you, you uh, suppose is the cornerstone of, matri- of matriarchy. Yes. Mm, I would say, in the sense that it's designed to bring the goddess onto the planet, and the goddess is really foundational to matriarchies. They are not necessarily, that is not necessarily the only type of divinity in matriarchies, but it is obviously the central figure, since women and the feminine are the central actors. They're at the center, though. They're not at the top. It's a different geometry. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, okay. you're right. That makes sense. Very important for people to understand that because it's not, ideally, it's not the reverse of patriarchy where women are bashing men over the head. Right. <laughs> you know, it's women at the center and societies of peace and balance. Mm. Okay. All right. So that was the, that's the first form of divine birth, X chromosome only, and really conception, quote unquote conception, the tantric practice and uh, altered consciousness and light. Yes. Okay. Uh, and that brought forth only female offspring. Yeah, initially. That's mm-hmm. what I surmise from my research. Okay. All right. Okay. So let's go on. So what's next? So what's next is that there seems to have been a shift where these virgin mothers, these high priestesses, were now able to conceive male avatars from their body which in some senses was even more miraculous feat, given yeah. that they're now working with chromosomal differences. So right. they have to kind of manifest a Y chromosome out of it or break off the X chromosome, or I'm not sure what the technology is there. But mm-hmm. this seems to be at a time when patriarchy or at least male gods are starting to rise in ascendancy. Um on the astral plane as well as the human plane. So I'm talking in some senses very esoterically here, but people who are into hermetic magic understand that as above, so below, that there is a divine realm, that what happens there influences the earth plane and vice versa. And so that's where that maxim comes from, as above, so below. So because there were doings on the astral plane around sexual politics, shall we say, um, the earth plane was affected that way too. And so now these women we're getting involved in producing high holy level male avatars. But the good news is that in this initial phase, what they were creating were the divine kings, the inspired 
kings who were not only political leaders, but also spiritual leaders. They were supposed to be in service. They were not supposed to be making the public serve them. And do we have any historical examples, mythological examples of the divine king that may have come in this way? Um, There were numerous um, legendary figures in ancient Greece that people probably would not recognize. Um, I would say most archetypally familiar we would have would be Jesus. Mm, Okay. Number one. And Arthur, King Arthur. He, there, there's a whole story that I haven't published or written about, but there were divine birth doings around his conception, around Merlin, his, uh, his priest's conception, and so forth. And the whole grail story, Avalon, is all filled with divine birth stories that are very rarely looked at. Mm. But this is part of the pattern. But ideally, like, Arthur represents the benign king of course, he's in an age where there's already warfare and whatnot. And he's trying as much as he can, but he carried the Christed energy, and okay. uh, he did carry that divine king energy. So that that's just to give people an idea. Okay. All right. So uh, male offspring, the ascendancy of male gods in non-ordinary reality manifesting on Earth through the same cultic practices. Any difference in the the way the women prepared themselves or... That I don't know. There's a little bit of a veil on that for me. I haven't been shown that information um, of what might have been different there. Okay. And I'm guessing that the uh, pure female parthenogenic experience lasted quite a long time. Yes. I think that was the original form of it for thousands of years. And in the ancient archaeological record, you see images of the double goddess or two female figures coming out of one body or one kind of giving birth to another in an egg. I contend these are all signs and symbols of the reality of parthenogenetic birth Mm. that was happening in the sacred context for thousands of years of the first origins of humanity, not as the exclusive means of reproduction among common people, but as the means, the highest means of the religious shamanic functionaries. All right. And so the second phase where we're talking about divine kings showing up, do you have a sense for how long that lasted before we hit the third phase? If I'm going to guess, I'm I'm thinking that this was somewhere around the 3000 BCE, maybe earlier, to about... You know, the, the thing is that once you start getting recorded history, mm. you already start. So in other words, around 3000 BCE, kind mm. of around the world, you already start getting indications of the third type of parthenogenesis. Okay. Which, so let's just talk about it. Let's Let's go there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's too speculative to mm. really talk about time frames. Right. But, okay. Um, here is where you see a break in the practice, and the stories that start coming to the fore are essentially the rapes, the rapes of the maidens, the rapes of the nymphs in the Greek tradition. For by, by the gods, the rapes, rapes of the women by the by gods, gods, by masculine gods. Yep. And you also get here the Egyptian queens consorting with pharaohs who embody the god uh, sorry, that actually, technically, that's a later phase. So let's not even go there. Okay. Right now, we're talking about still 
there's no sexual intercourse with a male figure, a male human figure. In, in this stage that I'm talking about right now, the women seem to have had their trance states and their practices interrupted by the sudden and unbidden presence of a male god who was coming across as either seductive or a rapist who wanted to impregnate them. And that, that's where we have all these stories of the, of the nymphs and the virgins and so forth. And then the fathers who don't believe that the girls were impregnated by a god and, <laughs> you know, they were right. cast out to sea and whatnot. All these stories, there's many, many, many of them. And what this to me represents is a, a break in the tradition where now the women are, these high holy level virgins are starting to be used by the gods in order to bring forth the patriarchal heroes onto the planet. Because usually the result, the pregnancies from this are beings such as the Theseus, Perseus, Heracles, who all are, you know, come across as so-called fictional figures, but I contend are historical ancestors and others um, that move into the historical period, such as Alexander the Great, such as Plato, such as Pythagoras. And so there are some benign ones and positive ones, and there are some negative ones. The negative ones would be Theseus, Perseus, Heracles, whose exploits show that they are kind of destroying the power of the matriarchy, destroying the power of the priestesshoods and um, the divine feminine, and they're installing male priesthoods and, and, and heads of state and so forth. So this is interesting. Was it Heracles who had who had a commission to accomplish some things for who did he, who was he doing that for? His father, Zeus. Oh, it was for Zeus. Okay. His father was Zeus. But, and, and the mission he was, he was given the mission by Zeus. Um, it was a very internecine complex thing that happened. Cause somebody was sent on a, on a, maybe it was Jason. His 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 commission was to do all these things on behalf of Hera, right? But that um, wasn't Heracles. No, not exactly. No, okay. it, it, these were not done at the behest of Hera. These were done because Hera tried to prevent him from being born, wow. and in a sort of a tricked deal, um, he had to, you uh, if he would do these twelve labors, then um, you know he was allowed to sort of live or, or whatever it was. But um, the 12 labors of Heracles, if you break it, break them all down, every single one of them is basically vanquishing the sacred feminine or priestesshood. Um, and he's, he's complex because he's also a composite figure. You know, there were in, it's, it's too complicated to go into now, yeah, but okay. the, the basic idea is that these priestesshoods started getting used and co-opted by the male gods in order to bring their sons, their avatars onto the planet who had a different agenda from the goddesses, priestesses and queens and the goddesses avatars under mother-centered societies. So why do you think that is? Because there are dramas that go on in the cosmos, just as there are dramas that go on on Earth. And there's been a great cyclical turning, an eon of hell that we've all been through that has to do with the rape of the feminine in, in the heavens as well as on earth. 
um, for some reason, the masculine kind of wanted to feel its oats because under this under this schema, what what gets revealed very strongly is that the masculine emerges from the feminine. And I think that's you know that's a that's a totally fair statement, phylogenetically as well as right. ontologically, right? I mean, we had asexual reproduction. You can you can look at a yeast cell and say. Uh, the mother is producing the daughter, <laughs> you know, like, so that's, that's like, totally, totally reasonable. However, there's obviously the divine delights in sexual reproduction because look at how successful it's been, right? I mean, the, the diversity that, that, that accrues through sexual reproduction is way cooler, uh, way more interesting than just asexual reproduction. So, when we when we contemplate the the divine politics of this i'm i'm really challenged to say uh i have to challenge myself to say well there had to be some reason this was going on there had to be some upside to this even though it seems like it was the rape of the goddess the rape of the feminine on on all scales what i i guess what i'm asking is what are we missing so what I come to, and I write about this at the beginning of my book, Virgin Mother Goddesses of Antiquity, is that one possible way of looking at this is that the universe is a mother. She, reality, existence is essentially feminine who births out of herself. Hmm. And in birthing the masculine out of herself, she gives complete free will to her progeny to the point where her progeny can decide that they want to take her over, that they want to take her role. And that's the rape. So she has to go through this intense theological journey of even getting taken over by her own creation, which given that she's a universal womb, a universal mother, that takeover is a sexual rape of her womb, of herself. She has to give over to the masculine and she goes through this great drama. And in the end, it comes back into a balance as the masculine starts coming back into balance with the feminine and realizes that these big, these huge humongous struggles don't really need to happen. Mm, You know, we can, we can come back into balance and that is what I think is in a sense happening today with the changing of our epic as the masculine and feminine are coming into greater accord, the feminine consciousness is coming back onto the planet and so forth. I think it's also what the initiates went through in the Eleusinian mysteries where they would have to experience the drama of the goddess, which meant the drama of the goddess Persephone as the Holy Virgin mother getting raped. Okay. So on that note, I want to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk about Persephone and Demeter. Okay. Okay. So we'll be right back. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest. Or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. 
There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carosella, in conversation with Marguerite Rigoglioso. And in particular, we've been talking about uh, the cult of divine birth. And when we uh, took our break, we were just about to talk about Demeter and Persephone. And I think you've des- you've described this as a consequential example, even in antiquity. Yes. So tell us about the whole. Give us give us this from the beginning. So, so Demeter and Persephone are sort of the paradigm of the mother daughter parthenogenesis. Okay. There's a deeper story than any intrusion of gods like Hades or Zeus into the story as the rapist of Persephone. The deeper level of the story is that Demeter is the universal mother in a sense, but also the mother of the grain on earth, the food. And Persephone is her daughter who was born out of her parthenogenetically. That's really the underlying matriarchal paradigm to that story, if you really analyze it. What ends up happening there is that we see in their story the exact moment of the changeover from matriarchy to patriarchy in Persephone suddenly being raped by her own father slash uncle, because Zeus and Hades, in one story it's Zeus, in another it's Hades. And this is a story, this is part of a story that says that Persephone was actually born of a sexual union. Mm-hmm. Okay? Right. So there's like two kind of parallel things going on, but you can discern the older substratum of actually Persephone was the parthenogenetic daughter of, of Demeter. But in the story in which whether you're going to call this male figure, her father, her brother, her uncle or whatever, the male rapes the holy virgin who was supposed to be the next parthenogenetic actor in this lineage of goddesses who are giving birth to herself parthenogenetically. But it is stopped. Hades Zeus comes into the picture. Persephone is raped. And in one version of the story, the child that comes out of that is, lo and behold, Dionysus, <laughs> which is interesting because what's happening is that through the body of Persephone is the seed of the male god being sieved and sort of leached of its negativity. And it comes out as Dionysus, who was known to be the god's gift to women, the freeing god of women, oh. healing god of women. So it, it's like a paradoxical um cleansing and reversal. So these stories are all about paradox, reversals, eons transforming themselves into their opposites. I mean, this is the mystery that goes on in the the, uh, Eleusinian mysteries, which celebrated these two goddesses and so forth. And what I do in a very provocative reading of this in that second book, Virgin Mother Goddesses of Antiquity, is I say the Eleusinian mysteries were based in virgin birth. But they were also based in a virgin birth that was co-opted and that then the god came in and used the body of the female goddess in order to produce his own progeny and his own sons. In this case, it was a benevolent, helpful male figure. And so what I contend is that the initiates of the Eleusinian mysteries had to undergo this great cosmic drama that we were just describing a minute ago, where the goddess herself has to be overtaken and raped by her own creation. Mm. And then 
the initiate has to be all the characters in the story. It has to be Demeter, the mother who grieves and loses the daughter. It has to be Persephone who gets raped. It has to be Hades, Zeus, the rapist. And it has to be Dionysus, the child who is reborn of that experience. That is the death rebirth aspect of it. And it ends the violence. It ends the cycle of rape and violence in that in the end, the goddess continues to prevail. Peace and all the negativity is leached out of the experience, out of the masculine. The masculine must come into right relationship with the feminine. And Dionysus actually uh, represents something that nurtures the feminine. Absolutely. He's liberating. He would liberate women from the strictures of their times, allowing them to go up on mountains and cavort with him in a sexual way, which was very taboo at the time. Mm-hmm. but wow. they could release their domesticity and they could go and have an altered state experience. So, you know, th- these are mysteries upon mysteries as you and I were discussing over the break. This is not a one-on-one level r- interview right now. If, if people want to hear my one-on-one. <laughs> yeah. Where do we, yeah, sure. Hear more of that, but you are getting it on a level that I think is appealing to your audience. And hopefully people are being sparked in lots of different directions with what's being said and their memories are being triggered. Yeah, and I, I think it speaks well to to the moment in time in which we are living that we are getting, men in particular, are being challenged to get back to a place of nurturing. Yes. Not just nurturing ourselves, but nurturing the planet and nurturing our, our feminine counterparts. Right? I think that we are witnessing the great turning of the wheel. I think that we are ending, we are seeing the end of the eon of rape that began with Persephone's rape. Well, that's that's an optimistic perspective and I'm delighted to hear you say that. Yes. The healing is happening. So I want to, just for, because this is such a positive direction, uh, I'm almost hesitant to go back here, but I, I want to just poke this bear one more time and ask, when we talk about, like, Zeus as a masculine over-God, you know, all-father kind of character, and the story of his giving birth, quote-unquote, to his children from his head, there's got to be something here that, like, at the, ver- at the very simplest level, I'm seeing this is the birth of the ego as the master. This is the creation of and the coalescence of divinity or deities that are driven from the head, not the heart or the gut. Not the womb. Not the womb. Because what happens in that story you're referring to Zeus's birthing of Athena out of his head who's the goddess of wisdom, by first swallowing his preg- her pregnant mother, Metis, before her, another parthenogenetic female lineage story, and Zeus swallows her. And he, always what you find in these stories is the male is not able to give parthenogenetic birth. That's why they always have to find the female, be it a woman or a goddess. Mm. That's the rule of the universe. Cannot be broken. So that's why they rape the goddess's womb or they swallow the goddess and then try to give 
so-called birth to her out of their body in strange places that doesn't work even on the astral plane. <laughs> they don't have the right anatomy. So we have this story where he gets this kind of indigestion and Hades has to crack his head open in, other, in order for this Athena to be birthed out of his head. And this does represent a number of things. Number one, the co-opting of parthenogenetic power by the masculine, which we're seeing today in the use of cloning and genetic engineering. Mm. P.S. Hello, right. people. Hoping that people's memories and consciousness is going to get awakened by hearing that statement. Mm. And the seeds, what's going on with the seeds. Right. That is the masculine appropriation of parthenogenetic power in very concrete and practical terms. So, we are looking at Zeus and what happens in the process of a male god giving birth to a feminine god out of his head, just as Zeus's crap was leached out of the situation by going through the sieve of Persephone's body, mm-hmm. a kind of uh, problem was inserted into Athena being birthed out of Zeus's body in that she became devoid of her own womb, sterile in a sense. Right. And in the service to the masculine, so all her strategic wisdom started going toward war. Ah. Instead of peace. And she was beholden and in servitude to the masculine and became loyalized to the masculine. And the Greek playwrights have her say, I came from no mother, ever loyal to my father am I, or you know, something of that nature. And that that represented a changeover too. The absolute swallowing of the feminine by the masculine machine. And that's a part of this drama. Wow. Wow. On the cosmic level, it is so intense. What is going on? So what is, I'm, I'm looking for redemption here as a carrier of the Y chromosome. <laughs> yes. yes, because there's nothing inherently bad about the masculine. There is nothing inherently bad about the masculine. What what happened here was a getting out of balance, a deterioration of ethics and right relationship and respect between the gendered energies in the cosmos. And there are more than just masculine and feminine, as we know, but let's just stick with that for now. Okay, so a, a, a provocative question for which you might not have an answer. And I've been thinking about this since I read your book, and actually before this, because I don't really understand uh, how how it got this way. How, why, why did it get so out of balance? Like normally, nature has a way of experiencing, accepting and experiencing the ebb and flow of things in ways that create diversity, that enhance complexity, that stimulate beauty, my hypothesis is that something had to be seriously already out of balance. Something had to be precipitously close to collapse for the matriarchy to be so profoundly... And, and, and you know, presumably a very bucolic and nurturing matriarchy to fall so hard and be so completely dominated by this emerging, this new idea, which was patriarchy. What, why did it, how did we get to this place where this was 
that where nature would even allow this to happen? Well, there's two things going on here. First of all, there is an ebb and flow. We're just talking about a much longer ebb and a, and a much longer flow than humans are used to thinking of. Ah, okay. Okay, the eon concept is humongously long. It's like the yugas in the traditional Hindu um, mm. you know, conception, okay? Right. Number one. Number two, we're also talking about energies that came into being that can attach to the masculine or feminine and, and are not inherently owned by one or the other that I think began to affect both of them because what I get from my guides is that it wasn't just the masculine that became a problem. The feminine also became a problem. Um, there started to be power issues, ego issues, and a sort of a, an abandoning of the posts, so to speak, in which then these other kind of energies and entities can come in, attach, possess, and start um, acting and taking over. So it's almost like the possessed masculine that has caused this situation, but there was also a possessed feminine that contributed to it early on, just like in what we hear from Native American cultures is that they were already having their problems before the European settlers came in. And similarly in Africa, they were already having their problems before, you know, yeah. colonists came in to do slaving and so forth and so on. So you, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like there's these energies that are afoot and they may not necessarily be masculine or feminine, but can hijack. They can hijack one or the other. Mm. So what we're seeing is like a great drama, a great cosmic drama that's being enacted in microcosm on planet Earth. And we are part of the great turning because also humans have divine spark and we're part of that holographic reality as above, so below. So we can influence from the bottom up. So every time a woman or man awakens to the conception that there is a divine, number one, that there is both a feminine and a masculine divine number two, we're already influencing the hologram. When we put out into the hologram that we can have healing of this rape energy through the compassion toward our wounds and the restructuring of our behavior, we are also similarly creating healing out into the cosmos in, in incredible dimensionality. So it, it is a great cosmic drama that is happening. And it is cyclical. Mm. Yeah. So this brings me back to the, you know, the idea that uh, what, what I mentioned earlier about Zeus and the ego giving birth to something, right? The mind giving birth to something, and we all adopted, inherited, and leveraged that. Yes. For this this eon, this this great cycle, uh, and the same can be true as we come back to a more balanced reflection and relationship to our own feminine generative capacities. Yes. The mind, for example, I am using my mind to do all this research so that I can get back in my body and help other women and men get back in their bodies, their wombs, their phallus, or whatever their sexual apparatus is. Mm. Yeah. Because it is being there in the body and, and working in each chakra consciously that that this healing is going to take place and wow. this rebalancing is going to take place. Mm. So at the very beginning of the show, you made the statement that divine birth was the 
the apparatus of matriarchy, the cornerstone of matriarchy. Mm-hmm. Reflect on that a little bit more. Why was that? Couldn't we have had matriarchy without that? So I will reflect on that. I, I also want to say briefly that there was at least a fourth, if not other, forms of, of divine birth practices that the woman priestess, there was a move from her having the sexual relations just on the astral plane with the god who was raping her or seducing her, because a lot of times he would trick, they would trick the, the females. Um, it moved into a sacred marriage, a yeros gamos, where there was now a priest or king who would embody the god and physically have intercourse with the queen or priestess. And that was when they were able to capture the body through the male line, the body of the avatar and the lineage and the name of the avatar through the male line, whereas before it was only the female's body that this was coming through. Now that there was actual male sperm involved, they were t- they were total the total co-optation of divine birth happened. And this is the practice of the creation of the divine kings of Egypt, for example. Mm, okay. So the queen would mate with the reigning pharaoh, but we know from the archaeological material that the pharaoh would get out of the way and Amun, or whatever the god was conceived of, would come through, and it was he who would give the seed to the woman, and it was his child that was born as the new pharaoh. Mm, interesting. Okay? So, um, so that's one thing. I just want to kind of close the loop a little bit on that, and then... So wait, before we, so before we leave that, you, you stimulate another thought for me here. The idea of divine birth now, when it started, it was female only, female relationship with source or light that created the biological event. Then there was a relationship with a masculine spirit, and you identified it as seduction or rape. Yeah. And the third was that there was a cooperative relationship between a physical masculine and a physical feminine, uh, where the physical masculine would step aside and let, let a divine masculine participate. Yes. Now, so there, there's one there's one thread or a scene here that I well, there's two actually. Uh, one is the the thread where it's a priestess, prepared priestess, who is choosing to engage in, to consort with a divine masculine spirit. Not seduced and not raped. Yes, because what happens is, under the pressure of the masculine and then the masculine clergy that that was starting to take over this practice, which was incidentally done at all the major oracle centers, by the way. So the oracle women were also the virgin birth priestesses. So the psychics were the virgin birth priestesses. But the women eventually started capitulating into it because they they realized they, they could claim at least something, some power. And even if it was starting to get degenerated, and even if they were agreeing to uh, let the issue of nefarious male gods come through their body, at least it was something. At least it was still a kind of a power. And so some of them started going into it wholeheartedly. And we see this, for example, in um, Alexander the Great's mother, Olympias. There are lots of hints, and I don't, this is not published in my books, but it is in my dissertation called Bearing the Holy Ones, which is the precursor to these books. She really went into this thing um, 
wholeheartedly and embraced this kind of power. So the women lost their ethics. Well, okay, so I want to ask the question slightly differently. Why would it be a loss of ethics or a capitulation or a degenerative form of divine birth to consort with a masculine deity in in holiness, right? In a sacred way. Because holiness and religious and spiritual and magical power can be used also for very negative purposes. Oh, of course, right. So it's, cl- it's, it's clear that there were, that that there were that bad things happened. Uh, is there any evidence that good things happened that way? Well, yes. For example, it seems that the sons of Apollo tended to be sort of the more beneficial ones to humanity. Mm. So that would be, for example, uh, Pythagoras, Plato, and others that are legendary, more known as more legendary figures. Those are historically known. Mm. So their, you know, their mothers, Perictione and Pythias, were clearly divine birth priestesses connected with Delphi mm. that would give birth to beneficial consciousness-raising individuals on the planet. Okay. All right. So which brings me to the last thread here, which is eroscamos between a human female and a human male where they're both participating and in, in communion with deities that are also both participating. Yes. Sort of a modern-day egalitarianism where where both parties are as divine as they are as they can be and are both participating as humans but what happened was the women were not really given full choice as to what gods were coming through oh. and therefore they were giving birth to the issue of patriarchal gods mm-hmm. which for the most part are the egyptian pharaohs and then whenever they would get involved with, you know, certain patriarchal gods, like, I'm not going to name them, but <laughs> there would be problems. There, the children would be like more like a plague on the planet than a help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So do we have, uh, I guess what I'm, what I'm hoping to conclude is that we're in an age now where through the work that you're doing, for example, and through the uh, reemergence of tantric practice, and the merging of, of spirituality and sexuality, that we might actually get to a place where we're starting to birth more enlightened offspring. Yes. And people like, I believe, Aleister Crowley or Gerald Gardner, I'm not sure which one. Aleister Crowley talked a lot about this, about men and women being able to do rights to bring, to bring in certain types of beings. The conscious conception movement, I would say, is on this continuum mm. where women and men are understanding that, hey, what I'm thinking about when I conceive this child might influence, you know, who this person is and or maybe I should be working in prayer during this sexual relation in order to invoke a being that will be of a certain vibration that they will have a positive life, they will be able to bring positive things onto the planet. Mm, yeah, very cool. So there's a continuum of things that could be happening for people now, and conscious conception is a big one in in just the regular bedroom, let alone in a spiritual 
sacred, ritualized context to do some really high magic. Mm. Yeah. Well, okay. So, uh, listeners, <laughs> Let's see. time to get to work. <laughs> okay. So, well, it looks like we're just about out of time, actually. This has been such a... I, mean, I know we could go on... We could talk about this probably for another hour or more. Oh, gosh, yeah. But I just want to offer you the opportunity to give us some some last thoughts or perspectives, maybe something that we didn't talk about this time but we want to talk about next time or just something for us to contemplate. Well, given that this is the time of the Christmas holiday, this, this talks about the mystery of Mary. And I just want to go back to the idea of Mary being a divine lineage priestess. And I really seriously talk about this in my webinar called Mary, Conscious Priestess of Divine Birth, which is available on my website. It's not very expensive, and it is worth dipping into at this time of year because it's a reclamation of Mary in the way that people have been reclaiming Mary Magdalene. Yeah, actually, this is a really interesting thing. And I'm going to run just a a little long here because Mary... Uh, the as the birth mother of Jesus. Yeah. Give us this. Give us a, this. She was born from Anne. Yes. Already, she was divinely born. That was see. This is something that that a lot of us uh, who hear the term immaculate conception, we miss the point. This is not about Jesus being immaculately conceived inside of Mary's womb. This is about Mary being immaculately conceived inside of Anne's womb. The Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which we just had on December 8th, has to do with Mary being born free of sin. Okay? But what does that mean? That's the church's way of hiding something. It means (laughs) it's hiding that she was divinely born. She was miraculously born because people born this way are very high holy level beings if the whole thing was done with integrity. That's what we mean by Mary being born free of sin. Now, okay, what about John the Baptist, though? He was born of his mother, Elizabeth, who was doing a conception ritual at the same time that Mary was doing a conception ritual of Jesus. They, it, According to the Infancy Gospel of James, which is where we get this information, that's a whole other story, and it's in my webinar, but these girls were doing these rites. Now, Elizabeth was an older postmenopausal woman, Mary was a just postpubertal woman. It could happen at both ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. They were both doing this ritual with five other women. There were seven women all together doing this ritual, this conception ritual at the same time. Two of them conceived, Mary and Elizabeth. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Yes. It is indeed amazing. And when people actually grasp what this is all about, it will just blow your head off. Yeah, well, it certainly turns the whole uh, mythology of the birth of Jesus and the emergence of of Christianity, it doesn't exactly turn it on its head, but it sure as heck changes the initial conditions, which ought to make us all think twice and three times about the nature of the evolution of our one of the primary religions on the planet. Exactly. And because it was done because there was a female priestesshood that was allowing and orchestrating this thing to happen. And the hiding of that has been one of the greatest unbelievable programs that has gone on on this planet. And to the detriment of both women and the planet overall. And men and everyone. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 So that was a pretty heavy closer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But let's have some hope because the conception of this divine avatar 
Yeshua was an important advent on the planet. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the high holy level beings who, who has come to the planet. And there's still much in the way of riches that he offers on the astral plane and Mary offers. Because see, what happens is they have ritual sacrificial deaths that allow them to ascend to the, to the place of godhood. Mm-hmm. When they do that, people can access them on the astral plane after their deaths through prayer and what have you. They continue to operate as divinities. And that's what went on. Yeah. in that situation. So we can still access, we can still go into the sacred heart, which is, this whole thing is about the heart. This whole thing is about love, moving into love. That is the ultimate purpose of this, to move humanity's consciousness higher. Yeah. Or, or lower, in a sense, from the head to the heart. Exactly, from the head to the heart and from the third chakra into the heart. It's yeah, eating. It's beautiful. Eating that place. Okay, so clearly there is tons of work to be done here, and you're packed with wisdom and esoteric knowledge on this stuff. If folks want to get to know you and or your work a little bit better, where do we direct them? They can go to my website, which is seven, and that's written out, S-E-V-E-N, sevensistersmysteryschool.com. Sevensistersmysteryschool.com. Yes, okay. and if you go there, there's a landing page with some free gifts where I have a, t- a little talk about what is this virgin birth business all about, <laughs> among other things. And then if you enter the site proper, you either get that or you say, no thanks, enter site. The whole site pops up, and under the webinars tab is the Mary webinar. There's many other webinars I've done. There's lots of free stuff. You have been there, John. There's lots of audios. There's um, some videos. There's writings of mine among many other things. So, and, and why Seven Sisters Mystery School? Seven Sisters Mystery School refers to the seven sisters of the Pleiades, mm. virgin mothers of the world. Wow, okay. Okay, and that's a whole other story and mystery. Well, <laughs> and for that story, we're going to have to wait. Uh, Marguerite, thank you so very much for joining me. This has been a great conversation, and I look forward to hearing more from you. And John, may I just, say for people in the Bay Area on December 21st, 2014, we're doing a solstice ritual. And so that's under my events tab in El Cerrito. And that's going to be a really beautiful mystery leading people from the darkness into the light in a, in a, a, a sort of a symbolic um, Eleusinian mystery, if you will. So I encourage people to look at that information uh, under the events tab, solstice 2014. Excellent. Okay. Thank you so much, Marguerite. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, John. Merry Christmas. To you, too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella. As I was putting together the show this month, I was contemplating stillness and the winter solstice and the idea of slowing down, and my attention was drawn to the Norse rune Isa. Isa represents ice, the physical and spiritual presence of frozen water. Now, ice indicates many things to us as humans. Certainly, it represents cold. And along with coldness comes discomfort 
and a slipperiness that can be dangerous. The Anglo-Saxon rune poem says, Ice be over-cold, immeasurably slippery. But ice is not all about discomfort. It also has a magical beauty. As glass it glistens, to gems it compares, a floor by frost wrought, fair to be seen. In this last, the Anglo-Saxon rune poem speaks not just to its beauty, but also to the structural nature of ice, as a floor. It turns out that the Norwegian and Icelandic rune poems also talk about the structural qualities of ice. Ice we call a broad bridge in the former, and in the latter, ice is bark of rivers and roof of waves. Now, we can imagine that at the time of the emergence of the runes, the understanding of the role ice played in nature, its practical utility in crossing a river or a stream, and its all-too-real dangers, the destruction of doomed men in the Icelandic, might be very different from our experience today. And yet, ice itself has not changed. It is still beautiful and treacherous. So I tried to understand Isa in the same way. What does Isa offer us? It warns of coldness and discomfort, but also offers beauty and utility. What else? Well, most of what I've read about Isa focuses on the stillness of Isa and the withdrawing of life energy around it, a kind of call to hibernation and stasis. As I thought about Isa and ice and what I know about it and what the ancients said about it, I came to see something different, something more. Yes, ice is cold, and most particularly, ice is not fluid like water is fluid. It's solid. So that very fluid and quick aspect of water, and by implication and experience of life itself, is shut down in the presence of ice. Life is turned off. Life as we understand it, biological life, requires liquid water to function. So life stops in the intimate presence of ice. But there is something else about ice that bears noting. When water freezes, it expands. It is not a contraction, as some have indicated. Water that transitions from being very cold to being frozen solid, is suddenly less dense than it was before. And, because it forms crystals, it's also more ordered and more structured than it was before. We don't often think about the consequences of these two characteristics of ice, that of being less dense and more ordered. But because ice is less dense than water, it floats. The ancients acknowledged this when they said bark of rivers, roof of waves, and broad bridge, and on the surface of a lake, a floor wrought by frost. They didn't understand the interaction at the molecular level, but they saw through clear eyes. They also experienced the orderliness of ice as bridge, roof, and floor, a structure that could be understood and explored, a technology in some sense to be exploited, and an asset that could offer support. So I looked at these two aspects of Isa, 
expansion, and order, and how they might be understood in the context of human life, and in the context of the other aspects of Isa, the other not-so-friendly aspects of Isa, cold, slippery, dangerous, and brittle. Again, from the poems, the blind man must be led, and the destruction of doomed men. It seems to me that Isa represents a condition where, even though life as it is commonly lived, is put on hold or stopped, there is not a sense of inevitable retreat and collapse or contraction. Rather, even as we retreat from the coldness, there is a place in the presence of Isa where some part of us can actually expand. For those willing to look deeper, there is more space within us and in our circumstances than we might at first realize. And while the flowing nature of water is blocked, there is a structure, a crystalline matrix, that can support us. So, if we're willing to brave the discomfort of the cold, and we're willing to be led when our sight is inadequate, we can find, in Isa, a place of support and order where we can let go of our own need to control and contain and structure aspects of our lives and expand. And in that letting go and expansion, release something and make room for something. Release what? Make room for what? I wonder. Perhaps that's only knowable when, instead of shrinking away from the coldness, we welcome the discomfort, accept a hand to guide us, and willingly enter the realm of Isa. We'll be right back. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Well, that's our show. Hope you enjoyed it. It's the season for stillness, good cheer, and contemplation of the amazing dimensions of human spirit and imagination. And with the solstice comes the returning of the sun, and its awesome generative powers. As you contemplate the new year, what will you choose to give sacred birth to? As my favorite poet Mary Oliver offers in her poem, The Summer's Day, ironically from the opposite side of the year, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Now's a good time to embrace that seed, and in the womb of your deepest self, help it germinate. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show. Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.